Hi, you're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Interview episode on Hellenistic Naval Warfare with Stephen DeSashin. Hello, everyone. Today we have joining us Stephen DeSashin, a PhD student out of Texas A&M University. Stephen currently studies nautical archaeology, specifically the role of naval warfare within the Greco-Roman world, among other related topics, such as the composition of navies, the role of naval monuments, and technical aspects such as warships and rams. He currently runs communications for the RPM Nautical Foundation and is a research assistant for the Institute of Nautical Archaeology. As always, thanks for coming on the show and glad to have you here. We can start with a bit on your background. What led you to focusing on ancient naval warfare during your education? Was it because you wanted an excuse to be able to go deep sea diving and enjoy the sunny weather of the coastal Mediterranean as part of your fieldwork? Or is that more of a romanticized ideal of how you got started? Well, first off, you know, thank you for having me on the show. Being a nautical archaeologist does have its perks, right? Like you said, uh, however, for every hour you spend in the field, it usually results in spending many, many more hours in the library researching and writing. I never really planned on being a nautical archaeologist. It was more of a, a dream that developed organically through my education. I did, however, grow up um, in New Jersey, next to the bay and next to the ocean. So I, I would visit and take catamarans out as a child. But through my education, I went to Stockton University in South Jersey, where I got my BA in historical studies in ancient Greek language. And then I moved to Florida and went to the University of South Florida in Tampa. And I was able to work with Dr. William M. Murray, who is uh, well known in the field of naval warfare. And he's the one that really inspired me to move forward in the field of nautical archaeology. While I was there at, at USF, I was able to attend the American School of Classical Studies at Athens for the summer session of 2018. And that just solidified my need to be a nautical archaeologist to explore warships and rams and, you know, just seeing um, all the iconography of ships in the Greek world really inspired me and wanted me to push forward. So I applied and I got into uh, Texas A&M University, where they are one of the number one places in the world for nautical archaeology. And now I'm, I'm there and I'm, I'm doing work. <laughs> it has been said that the Hellenistic period, including the conflicts between Rome and Carthage, was the high watermark of ancient naval warfare. And following the victory of Octavian Caesar at Actium in 31 BC, there was nothing in the way of anything comparable to the great megaships of the royal dynasts or the enormous naval engagements as it happened in the First Punic War until at least late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. Now, before we begin discussing these broader concepts, let's talk about the basics. When we refer to a warship, what does that exactly mean by the time we get to the Hellenistic period? How had the warship or naval combat evolved from its predecessors at the time of Salamis or the Peloponnesian War, and is there any surviving evidence from shipwrecks or treatises on the subject? Awesome questions. So, in antiquity, a warship typically was a long, slender galley powered by multiple oarsmen at one or multiple banks or levels. To understand warships in antiquity, we must understand how they actually classified them, both ancient and modern. There are three main ways in which this is done. So in antiquity, they categorized warships, one, by the number of oarsmen on the entire ship, two, by the descriptive term cataphract, meaning something like armored or fenced or enclosed, basically in a sense of having reinforced decks or deck covers and sides to protect oar crews from missiles and deck fighting that happens. This would be opposed to aphract, meaning open and unguarded. Third way to classify warships was by their class name, which is the number of rowers or levels of oarsmen plus the air ace route. So 
going a little bit deeper in each one of them, by the number of oarsmen, I'll give the example of the pentaconter, which simply means 50 oared vessel. The exact date that this type of vessel was introduced to Greece is unknown. Nevertheless, the vessel is mentioned in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, which provide a relative date to its introduction sometime during the Bronze Age or Archaic Age in Greece. The pentaconter literally means, again, 50 men, and the 50 men are typically broken down 25 men per side at one level. These vessels could be cataphract or aphract, like we just said, and these vessels eventually added an additional level where the men would be broken up amongst those two levels. And then moving on again to the second description, cataphract, meaning armored, or aphract being unarmored. Uh, this type of classification is usually uh, used throughout antiquity and can describe many, many different ships, many different classes. It's more of a general, is your ship armored or not armored? But the most significant for the Hellenistic uh, age and the rest of antiquity is by the class name. So again, with the number, could be the number of rowers or levels of oarsmen, depending on the warship, in combination with the Ares root, meaning fitted or oars. Within the Ares classification, there are many differences. So we take the quintessential trirace or trireme, meaning three fitted or simply a three. When we talk about it in, you know, in scholarship, they refer to warships as threes, fours, five, six, sevens. We'll see that. Uh, but the trireme is first built, uh, according to Thucydides, in the seventh century by Corinth. They can be cataphract or aphract. The cataphract trireme comes in about the 5th century. They have three levels of oarsmen. Thranos level, meaning deck. This level of oarsmen rode through the outrigger. The zigoi, meaning bench. They sat directly on the beam of the warship and rode through oarports. And then we have, obviously, the lowest level from thalamos, meaning hold. This level of oarsmen rode through oarports in the hold of the ship directly above the waterline. The terminology used to refer to the level of oarsmen in a trireme was commonly used to indicate similar levels of oarsmen in smaller and larger vessels. Basically, the trireme set the technological and physical limitations of how many levels of oarsmen a warship could have in antiquity, which would be three. So as we get to the Hellenistic Age, we have ships that are called polyremes, which are used basically to describe anything larger than a trireme. Polyreme comes from the Greek word polyrace, but such a term actually you know, never existed in antiquity. But we use it to refer to these ships and as many fitted or many oared, hence polyreme. An example of a polyreme would be a pentarace or a, a pentareme, or for the Latin lovers, a quincareme. Uh, this refers to the number of men per side, not per level or per oar, right? So this is still somewhat debated, but the, layer of a, uh, the layout of a five would be two men at the top level, two men at the middle level, and one at the bottom level. Uh, the trireme levels of three men being the limitation of vertical height for the warship. So a six, right, a seven, and an eight refers to warships with that number of men per size per side at three levels until you get to the largest of the polyrim warships. So once we get past the limitations of the sides that you can fit men, we have vessels like the Tesseracontus, the 40, right, the largest warship built in antiquity by Ptolemy IV in the 3rd century. So the Tesseracontus, the 40, no longer refers to the men per or per side because based on 17th century galleys, the maximum number of men that could reasonably manage one oar was eight. And these oars would be massive. You'd have to have uh, multiple steps. Men would have to get off their seats to pull the oar down. So realistically, you can't have more than eight men per oar. Athanasius tells us that the Tesseracontus had 40 ranks of rowers, being 280 cubits long and 38 cubits from one side to the other. And the ship had two heads and two sterns and seven rams. And when you put it and was put to sea, it uh, had 4,000 rowers and 400 extra staff, and the deck had 3,000 Marines. This was a massive ship. So no longer do we have the old um, array system of knowing the men per side. Now it's just these massive ships that no longer refer to the men or the men per oar.
you know, what did the Tessera Contes look like? It could have been a single hold ship, double keeled, or it could have been a, a double hold ship that we see used by Demetrius and Alexander during their uh, Siege of Tyre and Siege of Rhodes. Moving on, so that's basically how the ancients and moderns interpret the classification of warships in ancient text. For naval combat, in my opinion, is not a it is not a linear evolution, whereas the next warship or style is better than the next, but rather warships are built with a specific purpose or tactic in mind to attack or counterattack the enemy throughout antiquity. We will get into each of these tactics later. However, I see naval warfare as being broken down into six distinct yet overlapping categories of analysis. The first would be boarding, grappling, and simple missile exchanges. These tactics are used throughout antiquity. You can see it from the Homeric Age all the way down to Actium. And boarding, grappling, or it's simple. You know, throwing javelins, etc., at your enemy from deck to deck is also simple. Uh, the second category would be ramming and maneuvering to ram. This is exemplified by Athens in the fifth century. So you have maneuvers such as the ekplus, meaning shooting the gaps. The periplus, which is an outflanking maneuver, the key close, an offensive or sometimes offensive circle, and shearing of the oars. All these movements could either be individual ship movements or mass fleet movements, where you know in tandem these ships work together to outmaneuver and ram an enemy ship at the back, midships, or anywhere else that's not technically the front. Because then it brings us to the next category, frontal ramming, which was used mainly during the Hellenistic period. Frontal ramming is literally ramming a ship ram to ram, or at least at the front face of the warship. One of the craziest ramming instances happened in 49 BCE. Lucian tells us that a man in the water was pierced by the rams of two ships meeting. His chest was split into two by the dire impact. The bones crushed so the body could not halt the clash of bronze prows. The belly was flattened. Blood and gore spouted from the mouth. And when the ships backed water and the prows disintegrated, only then the corpse with shattered breast sank and the water poured through its remains. You know, ramming, frontal ramming is really gruesome, especially, like Lucian says, a man accidentally falls in the middle and is completely disintegrated. Moving on from frontal ramming, the fourth category would be large missile exchanges and naval siege warfare. This is, again, used mainly during the Hellenistic period. This would include different types of catapults, torsion and non-torsion, deck towers, siege towers. We also have the fifth category, special ships, fire ships, yoke freighters, turtle ships, things of that nature that are usually you know, one-off used or only used during major sieges. And then another style of warfare, of course, intimidation and prestige. Like we talked about Ptolemy's 40, it had no practical purpose. It was dangerous to maneuver, but it was a reflection of his power and position or even his megalomania, as some have argued. Moving on, as, as for surviving evidence from shipwrecks or treatises for ancient warships, the evidence is scarce, but still provides a glimpse of how they were built, maintained, and operated in antiquity. Currently, no intact or large warship remains have been found. This is due to the fact that warships are typically not laden with cargo, so that when they are damaged, nothing is over the hull to either bring the vessel to the seafloor or partly cover it for preservation purposes. What we do have from warships are their bronze naval rams. There is around 20-plus naval rams that are being found in existence or in the archaeological record. These pieces are heavy and do not uh, easily disintegrate in water. They provide us with the information into how warships were constructed and how they were cast and how they could cast such large single bronze pieces in antiquity. Uh, to name a few rams, we have the Athlete Ram, which is a Hellenistic period ram, the Egedi Rams, which are the most numerous collection of rams, and they come from the First Punic War, which we'll talk about, the Belgami Ram, which is actually a proembolium, which is a subsidiary ram to the main waterline ram at the waterline. So it's placed above the big ram at the bottom, it's right in the middle of the ship in on the stem. Uh, we also have the Piraeus ram, which is probably a trireme ram, which is in the Piraeus Museum in Athens. 
or in Piraeus. So there actually are no formal treatises in antiquity describing the exact nature of shipbuilding, and there is limited epigraphic and textual evidence for their day-to-day -day operations. What we do have is a plethora of ancient texts that describe warships engaging in battle, from Herodotus to Diodorus. Uh, these texts are invaluable in knowing how the ancients fought at sea. I think it's also important that we get a grasp of the cost and logistical scope of creating and maintaining these seagoing vessels. What sort of resources did it take to build and staff these ships, whether in the form of supplies, money, or labor? So, let's start with how these warships are constructed, and then we can move on on how much we think they cost to outfit and maintain during the Hellenistic period. As mentioned, there are limited archaeological remains of warships, so a lot of construction information we have comes from merchant vessels of the same period. It is safe to say that the majority of warships were built using shell-first construction technique. Shell-first is used to describe the process by which all or part of the outer hull planking was erected before the frames were added to the vessel. In pure shell-bit holes, like, for example, the Karenia shipwreck, the outer planking was self-supporting and formed the primary structure. The frames were fastened to the interior of the hull to form a secondary or stiffening structure. Frames in shell-first built holes are typically referred to as being passive frames, since they do not dictate the shape of the hull during its overall construction. This type of construction technique limits the possibilities to drastically change the basic overall design of any warship. For example, the maximum level of rowers that a warship could realistically have was three due to the restrictions of the shell-built technique. However, certain changes could be made within these restrictions to accommodate different military functions. Greek warships could only be constructed using the shell-first technique with either lace joints, peg, mortise, and tendon joinery, or a mixture of both. In the lace tradition, as evidenced by the Boneport shipwreck, the planking of the vessel was laced to one another and to the keel edge to edge. Notches or holes, sometimes tetrahedral in design, were cut into the planks. These notches were where the lacing would pass through to connect one plank to another. Once the lacing was tightened, the holes in the planks were plugged with wooden pegs and filled with pitch to make them watertight. A series of frames were added to the interior and of the finished hull. These frames were typically light and had rounded tops and narrow bottoms. They were fastened to the planks by using the same lacing technique. The lace tradition of shipbuilding uh, does not disappear with the invention of the mortise and tenon joint, uh, but was used in conjunction with it uh, as evidenced by the Magan Mikhail shipwreck in the 400s BCE. So pegged mortise and tenon, or unpegged mortise and tenon, shell-built vessels followed a similar construction pattern as a lace vessel, except with different joints to connect the keel, the planks, and the frames. A mortise, in the pegged mortise and tenon world, a mortise was a hole or recess cut into a part of the planking that was designed to receive a tenon. Tenons were pieces of wood shaped like rectangles that would be placed into mortises to corresponding planks. The combination of mortise and tenons would lock the planks into place once they were driven together. In some cases, pegs were used to make the joint of the mortise and tenon stronger. Uh, this was done by drilling a hole through the mortise and tenon, then driving a tapered peg through both. After the peg was hammered into the hole, it would be cut flush with the planking. In this type of construction, frames were fastened by copper nails that were either clenched or double clenched to the frame itself once they were in place. The use of pegged mortise and tenon joints, lace joints, are both dependent on the military function of the vessel. Overall, the preference in building warships seemed to be pegged mortise and tenon joinery because it provided a stronger and more rigid hull than a strictly laced warship. It is highly, highly doubtful, some have argued, but I believe it's highly doubtful that any ramming vessel was actually used laced joints. Uh, the best evidence we have for the overall construction of a Hellenistic warship is the athlete ram that we discussed. In 1980, the athlete ram was found off the coast of Israel near, near Athlete and weighed over 
approximately 600, sorry, 465 kilograms. Based on the symbols that were cast onto the ram, it was dated from around 204 to 164 BCE. The athlete ram is the most significant ram, and is the only one to be found with a partial section of the worship bow still attached to the interior walls of the ram itself. There were 16 pieces of wood found that included the ramming timber, port and starboard whales, the stem post, six side planks, a false stem, chalk, nosing, keel, and two bottom planks. The complex structure of the timbers found inside the ram indicate a type of advanced technology that had been developed over centuries. The ram, along with its ramming timbers, were part of a larger complex structure that allowed for the dissemination of ramming forces to be distributed along the entirety of the ship. Uh, the athlete ram indicated by the time of the Hellenistic period, the ram along with the bow timbers made up the entire warship as a weapon. So I kind of think of it as a, a hammer, right? The ram is the hammerhead, but you also need the shaft, the actual warship, to make the full weapon. So moving on to your real question, uh, the cost of material. It is not clear exactly how much a warship costs during the Hellenistic period. However, estimations can be made but we have to consider uh, a lot of the following items. First, you have to consider the cost involved in building these warships. This would include things such as large stocks of different types of wood, rope, pitch, wax, copper, tin, and all the other materials required for construction, and all in significant quantities. Uh, then there were the costs associated with the ship's gear, such as timber for oars, mast, yards, gangplanks, etc. The need for screens made of goat hair and canvas, sailcloth, sunshades, brailing buckets, ship's tools, anchors, chains, lead for brailing rings, and a ton of other vital gear needed for you know day-to-day -day operations. We also have to think about the warehouses filled with the ship's gear as well as the weapons and supplies. Then, the biggest thing, we have to consider the infrastructure needed to make and maintain these vessels, such as ship sheds in which the vessels were stored, to think about the foundries where the rams were produced, the arsenals where the catapults were constructed, the engineering workshops and the shipyards where the vessels were built, serviced, and repaired. And let us not forget all the merchant and cargo vessels needed to follow the fleet on their journey. Lastly, if you have to think about the payment of all the people involved, like marines, oarsmen, skilled sailors, commanders, and so on, in the process of doing all this. And not, on, not a one-time payment, but probably a yearly expenditure to keep the fleet at sea, or at bare minimum, ready to launch when needed. To have a fleet in antiquity was an enormous undertaking, an enterprise which required a lot of money, a lot of material, and a complex political, military, and societal structure to allow for a fleet to be created, used, and maintained. So the only information we have on the cost in monetary terms is based on information from Athens during the 4th century. So we're not really talking about polyremes here, but we're talking about probably triremes, but this can give us a hint of what we're talking about in monetary terms. It has been suggested that based on epigraphic and literary evidence, that it costs an average amount of 3,000 to 4,000 drachmae to run a single, a single Athenian trireme. Arguably, the actual annual outlay per ship could total more than 10,000 drachmae, uh, when amounts for various extra expenditures are included, like the ones previously mentioned. Now, think about what is needed to maintain warships larger than a trireme. The costs almost seem insurmountable. Uh, however, during the Hellenistic period, and thanks to the conquest of Alexander, the eastern Mediterranean was flooded with wealth, which allowed for the, these massive navies and ships to be built. We will see later on that the cost of this type of shipbuilding and warfare was actually too expensive, and we begin to see less massive ships uh, being built in the later half of the Hellenistic period. Uh, in short, <laughs> bringing it all together, we do not know the exact price tag of the warships during the Hellenistic period, but we do know that it was a high price tag and that the Hellenistic kings 
were really, really willing to pay this price tag to, you know, fight for Alexander's throne. By the time of the Wars of the Diodohoi, the role and scale of naval warfare had increased dramatically when it came to maintaining dominance over the eastern Mediterranean, the most obvious example being Demetrius Polyarchides' Siege of Rhodes. Could you tell us a bit about the changes that occurred during this period, and perhaps why such changes occurred in the first place? Of course. So, overall, scholars have argued that the change to naval warfare during the Hellenistic period was a combination of political and military chaos brought on by the death of Alexander and the excess amount of wealth possessed by his successors, uh, which resulted in a naval arms race to outdo one another in almost all aspects of life. The Siege of Rhodes, like mentioned, was a prime example of this. Demetrius used Rhodes as the ultimate show of his military power, technology, and the determination for a Hellenistic king to subdue an enemy both landed by sea. Through the use of innovative and grandiose naval siege machinery, Demetrius is tempted to take Rhodes by attacking the city's most vulnerable sections, the harbors. From this siege, a glimpse of the most unique ancient naval siege machinery is described, such as the use of large polyremes with large naval rams, yoke freighters with siege towers, and aphract and cataphract warships decked with various catapults. Uh, even though the siege of Rhodes was a failure for Demetrius, it was an indication to other Greek cities of the force that Demetrius could bring to bear. Using Rhodes as an example, the major change from naval warfare in the Peloponnesian War to the Hellenistic is the use of warships in frontal ramming attacks and their use in naval siege warfare. The first indication of the use of frontal ramming is during the Athenian siege of Syracuse during the Peloponnesian War. The first warship capable of frontal ramming was invented by the Corinthians during the Peloponnesian War, but the first successful use of such a vessel was not until 415. Frontal ramming would be a common tactic employed by Greek fleets from 415 all the way to the Battle of Actium. Uh, when the Athenians began their Sicilian expedition in 415 to capture the city of Rhodes and subjugate all of Sicily, they really had no inclination that it would end with the complete destruction of the Athenian force sent to the island. But the Syracusan victory was based less on the Athenian disadvantages and more so on the advantages utilized by the Syracusans by improving or modifying their own triremes in order to ram the enemy ships prow to prow. From Thucydides and Diodorus' account, the Syracusans made two distinct modifications to their triremes. The first involved the Syracusans cutting down their prows to make them smaller in size and more formidable than the Athenian prows. The second modification consisted of making the cheeks, or cat heads, epotides in Greek, of their trireme stronger. Uh, this new tactic involved striking the enemy warship in a head-on collision to break the bow of the enemy warship or dislodge the cat heads and disrupt the forward group of oarsmen, effectively disabling uh, the vessel. Frontal ramming as a successful tactic led to the creation of larger rams, the need for the increased sizes in naval rams was also not only to the ram an enemy ship prow to prow, but also to break through harbor defenses like chains and waterline traps when we, we begin to see naval sieges. Warships built for frontal ramming were identical in their basic construction as other, other earlier ramming vessels, and their primary purpose was to destroy the enemy ships and break through harbor defenses, like I said. The difference is that frontal ramming warships were built heavier, in a sense based on the desire to increase the warship's mass in order to increase the destructive power. Uh, they had to be able to withstand a frontal ramming strike on an opponent's ram without losing their own in the process. These larger warships were designed with heavier whales, which is a, a plank that runs on both sides of the ship. They required longer rams with deeper through pockets and cows to help distribute the shock of the ramming maneuver to the ship's structure both below and above the waterline. Uh, ships used for naval siege warfare were first employed by Dionysus I of Syracuse with the invention of torsion catapults during the end of the 5th century BCE. Catapults became larger and more complex during the campaigns of Alexander and were used on the decks of warships to besiege coastal cities, 
such as those you used during the famous seat of Tyre. After the death of Alexander, his successors used warships with a variety of catapults on their decks to conquer and besiege coastal towns and forts, just like Demetrius at Rhodes, who employed multiple yoke freighters where he took two freighters, put beams across them, lashed them together, and put basically a city taker, a Halepolis, on the back of the ship to both besiege the city walls and be able to shoot men from his towers. So naval siege warfare, naval siege warships needed to be able to frontally ram smaller vessels and barricades while having enough sturdy space on the deck to allow for the addition of catapults and towers. This meant that these vessels required the same type of construction that was used in frontal ramming vessels, such as large whales and rams, as well as an expansive deck. Some of these warships were even built with two hulls to accommodate the large siege weapons needed to take coastal cities, like we talked about uh, Demetrius, we talked about the 40 that had probably two hulls. These types of warships would need to be built to the highest standard since they served a dual purpose. Their wooden structures needed to withstand the power of a ram blow that would send shockwaves horizontally throughout the entire warship and also support the weight of catapults that added downward pressure on the deck. If there was an expression that could be used for many of the Hellenistic monarchs, it would be larger than life. And this is reflected by the popular trend of the royal navies to construct what are often called super galleys, gigantic ships that dwarfed any standard naval vessel prior to and after the period. What was the purpose of these ships? Was it a byproduct of some mutual arms race that got way out of hand? Or was there any actual value to these super galleys, practical or symbolic? So yeah, the, the primary purpose of the bigger warship was again to perform frontal ram strikes and besiege coastal cities. As we see in the ancient sources, commonly larger warships were able to literally outperform their smaller counterparts in their destructive power. With the constant fighting between the successors of Alexander, maintaining and keeping coastal cities were key to actually owning the Mediterranean. Therefore, developing warships to aid in attacking such cities were created to attack the most vulnerable parts, the harbors. So if you want to take a coastal city, you have to besiege it both by land and by sea, and the easiest way to get into a city being besieged is obviously through the harbor, which has the least defenses, is the most exposed, and if you can get your warships and your men through there, you have a good chance of actually taking the city. Another reason for the development is also based on hubris or for intimidation and prestige that we talked about, and they were not actually built for actual fighting, but rather for psychological warfare. These warships, the very biggest of the Hellenistic period, were built with the intention of breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting by showing an unyielding amount of naval power through grand displays. Many of these vessels would have multiple naval rams, siege weapons, and a significant amount of marines on board. The first warships built for this purpose were those in the fleets of Alexander's successors, including Demetrius, Ptolemy II, Lysimachus. Uh, the largest warship built for the function was, of course, the Tesserocontris. It had approximately 2,850 marines and a complement that I still think is an amazing seven naval rams. Exactly where they're placed, I still don't know, but it's, it's nice to think about. Intimidation and prestige warships served no other purpose than to scare the enemy and promote the grandeur of the king building the vessel. Uh, they were conceived by the shipbuilder as floating platforms that did not necessarily need to engage in combat. Therefore, there were no standard dimensions, and many of these ships were probably one-time builds. Many warships constructed in this style had, like we said, numerous rams, catapults, but these ships were probably likely very ineffective in actual battle. We don't see the Tesser Contest participate in battle. We don't see many of the large warships actually participate in battle, but they do make a presence again. The unique aspects of these types of warships 
where their size, again, like some may have been built with two holes or one massive hole with at least one keel. Or if they were two hole, they might have, um, you know, two keels or one, two, one ship with two sister keels. Um, again, the Tessera Contest is a prime example of this. According to Lionel Casson, who um, is a famous writer on naval warfare and naval aspects, he thinks that the Tessera, or he believes the Tessera Contest uh, was created by fixing two 20s together, right? So we talked about the, the naming system, right? A five, a six, right? A five is a queen cream. So uh, Eco Series is a 20. So Casson believes that a Tessera Contest is not a single ship, but two ships lashed together to make a 40. Two 20s make a 40. He said that it had probably a length of 420 feet, a beam of 57 feet, and a height of around 79 feet. This is a massive, massive ship. Uh, overall, the sources tell us it was a monstrous warship that had never left the harbor in Ptolemaic Egypt and was even dangerous to move. And I believe the only thing it was actually used for was a marriage. Uh, I think in the ancient sources, it said it was used for a marriage. <laughs> so were these monster ships a byproduct of some mutual arm race, like you said, that got out of hand? Uh, the answer is yes, of course. Uh, Dr. William M. Murray lays out that argument in his book, The Age of Titans, The Rise and Fall of the Great Hellenistic Navies, which I suggest everyone to read so you can get you know, a better sense of that argument about the arms race. In my opinion, I believe that the building of larger piloting warships is more complex than just an evolution of military technology and a naval arms race, but are symbolic conduits of the masculinity of Hellenistic kings. The Hellenistic kings regarded their own success and masculinity based on the power and authority they gained by defeating one another in battle. For these new Hellenistic kings, as long as their actions remained successful, their power was unquestioned. If one of them were to lose in battle, his masculinity was diminished, effectively threatening his position of power. The successors could only prevent their eventual downfall through quick victory or with a successful display of military power. The demonstration of innovative military techniques and technologies was a central part of the ruler's image and authority. This masculine competition for power through military strength provided the catalyst needed for the creation and expansion of massive warships. The largest warships before the Hellenistic period were those classified as fours, fives, and sixes. With the introduction of frontal ramming techniques and the need to outdo their peers, the Hellenistic kings built you know, warships to think about one another on an ever-increasing scale. The new warships were built in immense size, such as 10s and 20s, to ram each other head to head, besiege coastal cities, as I mentioned before. In this period, the warship became you know, a representation of their masculinity. The warship not only indicated a king's power to create such a monstrosity, but the penetrating power of the warship itself was synonymous with the king's own penetrative dominance. The warship was therefore almost a metaphorical phallus, you know, supporting the idea that Hellenistic kings needed to have a strong masculine sex drive and potency. The larger the vessel, the more powerful it was in penetrating and subjugating the enemy, and ultimately the need to build larger warships than their opponents. So Murray even mentions in his book, is bigger better? And what I'm t tackling here is I think that indeed for the Hellenistic kings, they thought that ships, at least metaphorical fellow ships, bigger was better. In naval and land siege warfare or naval warfare in general, K.J. Dover, who writes on sex and gender and antiquity, writes about the penetrative model, which implies that those who perform the attack are in the active or penetrative role, and those who are being attacked are in the passive or penetrative role. So in antiquity, you always wanted to be in the attacking role to be more masculine, right? So in the Hellenistic world, warfare was presented as a natural male activity in which masculinity could be gained and lost. Many warships in the classical and Hellenistic period were giving formal feminine names or nicknames based on the ship's appearance. You know, we have such as Pallas for Athena and Parthenos, meaning virgin. 
A few warships were named after some of the Hellenistic kings, such as Demetrius and Ptolemy. But the warship in naval warfare, in my opinion, played a dualistic, gendered, or hermaphroditic role. If the warship was feminine, then the naval ram was its penetrating phallic appendage. During the performance of a ramming strike, the attacker would play the active role in which his ram, or metaphorical phallus, would have the clear objective of penetrating the feminine warship, effectively solidifying it in the passive role. Like sexual intercourse, the ram would pierce the warship with its penetrating force. After penetration, the warship would back water. This would eject the ram from the hold it had created, effectively inseminating the enemy ship with water. The Hellenistic kings saw naval warfare as a masculine competition, of which bigger was better, and whoever could ram the other's warship into submission was the more masculine of men. The constant need of these kings to emulate Alexander in power and authority resulted in an unrelenting masculine competition that induced the rise and continuation of the big ship phenomenon. This idea, of, of course, is still uh, being fleshed out and is probably going to work into my uh, eventual dissertation, but you know, I, I think it's a good way to uh, view, besides the naval arms race, you know, put into a gendered aspect of what the big ship phenomenon really was. I don't think that this talk would be in any way complete without bringing up the role of naval warfare during the First Punic War, fought between the Roman Republic and Carthage during the 260s to the 240s, which might be considered the peak of naval combat in all of ancient history. How did it compare to events going on in Eastern Mediterranean, such as the development of tactics or philosophies of maintaining a navy? Great question. So for tactics and naval philosophies, there has been a negative view of the Romans as a naval people. I mentioned Lionel Kasson before, but in his work, The Ancient Mariners, Seafarers, and Sea Fighters of the Ancient Mediterranean in Ancient Times, uh, he described the Romans as basically an anomaly in maritime history. According to Kasson, the Romans were a race of lovers who became lords of the sea in spite of themselves. Uh, Kasson described Rome's ability to build and man multiple fleets over the span of the fierce First Punic War as nothing more than a miracle. Uh, the narrative that Cassin develops concerning Roman sea power has changed in recent years. The new interpretation of the evidence places two the two participants of the First Punic War, Rome and Carthage, as equal naval powers fighting for supremacy of the Western Mediterranean. Historians within the mid to late 20th century again have portrayed Rome strictly as a land power that was forced by its enemies to participate in naval warfare a practice which, they argue, Rome was completely inexperienced. They say that Rome's path to naval supremacy in the Mediterranean was you know, depicted more as a miracle, like we said, or a lucky accident, rather than a meticulous and intricate process. They say that the early Roman navy was argued to be jerry-built, filled with green crews fresh off the farm, and that they had highly incapable commanders. Even as they became the superior naval power, uh, they despised it so much that they let their navies rot in their shipsheds because they were such an uncompromising people of land power. This, I don't agree with this view, and there are some people who are coming out that also don't agree with this view. Uh, the archaeological evidence being brought to the surface at the Agate battle site uh, has changed the conversation and the interpretation of naval power during the First Punic War. Uh, we talked about the rams. The archaeological finds at Agate include multiple bronze warship rams, helmets, and amphoras. With the publication of Krista Steinbe's Rome vs. Carthage, The War at Sea, she asserts that the First Punic War was a conflict between two seafaring nations vying for power over Sicily in the Western Mediterranean. Steinbeck questions Polybius's historicity, who's our main source on the subject, and that his account has actually fueled the argument that Rome was just an agrarian society with no experience or connection to the sea. So she's saying that we're putting too much, too much faith in Polybius in his telling of what the Romans were during that period. Uh, he's still obviously useful, but should not be wholeheartedly accepted. She argues that with the archaeological evidence, 
and a closer reading of their primary sources, Rome's superiority of the seas during the Punic Wars and later in its history stemmed from actually good planning, determination to succeed, and a large pool of resources in Italy, including finance, manpower, and timber. And I completely agree with Steinbe's assertion. I, too, believe that Rome was not solely a nation of landlubbers, but also a semi-experienced and partially established naval power as evidenced by the First Punic War. We see them manning multiple fleets and taking on the Carthaginians at multiple battles during the First Punic War. And this is not something that an inexperienced nation, nation does. It's someone who is at least semi-experienced and has the naval infrastructure to do so. So as I said, by using Roman Egedi rams as the main source of evidence, uh, I believe that the Romans did have some sort of naval structure that was larger and more intricate than modern and even ancient scholars have portrayed it. In comparison between in the Eastern and Western Mediterranean, I tend to break down the Mediterranean into two networks or ideas of naval warfare and shipbuilding. The first network involved the Hellenistic kings in the Eastern Mediterranean that followed the so-called Macedonian style of naval warfare and shipbuilding. This style, like we said, produced ships of massive size that excelled in frontal ramming and besieging coastal cities. The second network included the Romans in the Western Mediterranean, which never built any warships larger than a six or a sextares. The Romans arguably preferred land-based warfare over naval warfare. Regardless, their constant determination to conquer their enemies led to them to produce multiple large fleets, like we saw in the First Punic War, comprised of mid-sized polyremes, and it would seem that they preferred quinqueremes overall. Due to their perceived beginner attitude towards the sea, scholars typically portrayed the Romans as only using grappling and boarding tactics. We see the use of the corvus, which uh, was eventually a failure. But despite their preference to using boarding tactics, the Romans did indeed participate in maneuvering and ramming tactics and even frontal ramming, as evidenced by the rams being found at the Agony Battle Site. Uh, these rams have been found with pieces of wood stuck between their fins, and some rams are shattered straight down the vertical stem to the back of the cow, which in my opinion indicates a ram that was used to possibly strike another ram head-on, decimating itself and maybe the other warship. So coming back to the two networks idea, the driving force for the creation of the Eastern Network, right, the Macedonian style, was the death of Alexander and the ensuing competition for, of his successors for his throne. The denial of a united Macedonian empire caused his successors to be caught in a naval arms race and the need to build larger and larger warships to combat each other. This naval arms race was so prevalent that every state in the Eastern Mediterranean was effectively enrolled without choice, adding multiple state actors to compete by adding wealth and warships to the Eastern Network at an ever increasing size as long as they had the monetary uh, or the wealth to do so. For the Romans in, in the West, their naval competition with Carthage was, their really, was the only real threat to their naval superiority. They fought multiple wars between Rome and Carthage, which brought about the building and manning of multiple fleets, like we said, with the intention to conquer one another. But it was nothing in size or military purpose as in the East. Uh, these wars led to small state entities such as Sicily to enter the war on the side of either major power. Like the Eastern Network, more actors joined either Rome or Carthage and added wealth and warships to both powers. Now, the key, the key differences between the two networks was their style of warfare, like we said, the size of warships built, and the presence or absence of direct competition within the network. The Romans defeated Carthage and all the other naval threats within the Western Network, successfully leaving no competitors. On the contrary, the Eastern Network was constantly engaged in internal warfare. Though the successors in the Eastern Mediterranean shared common goals, shipbuilding traditions, and warfare strategies, they continuously fought with one another. Their internal fighting caused centers of power to constantly shift within the network, or the Eastern Mediterranean. The lack of cohesion within the Eastern Network weakened its collective ability to combat a stronger outside network, 
enabling, in my opinion, enabling the Romans to eventually exploit parts of the Eastern network in a methodical manner. So converse to the Eastern network, the Roman network maintained a homogenous nature, which allowed it to shatter the Eastern network piece by piece with brute force, strategy, and resilience, which we see playing out in their conquest of Greece, Anatolia, the Levant, and so forth. The defeat of Antony and Cleopatra's forces by Octavian at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC was the last real major naval engagement of the classical world, and as I said earlier, it would be many centuries before we encounter anything on this scale again. Why did the navy fall out of favor in the Mediterranean? Was it because of the relative stability brought on by Rome's domination, or was it a gradual change that had been developing over time for various other reasons? Yes, the Battle of Actium did indeed end the use of large warships and was one of the last major naval battles of antiquity. Uh, large warships did begin to fall out of use before this time due to the cost, material, and manpower needed to operate such beasts in conjunction with larger fleets of, of smaller ships. So basically, before we get to Actium, the Hellenistic large ships have failed their purpose. Basically, they cost too much. They need massive fleets and support. So when you have big ships, they tend to be susceptible to being surrounded by smaller ships. So therefore, you need both when you have large ships, you need to have a fleet of smaller ships. So you need a nice combined navy. And, you know, certain naval conditions were not being met to use these massive ships before Actium. So it really exposed the weaknesses of these warships. However, you know, they're still effective weapons because they were present in Actium. Um, as many know, Octavian won the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE. Uh, but many do not know that he built a few monuments to commemorate his victory over Mark Antony and Cleopatra. At Octavian's newly established city of Nicopolis, founded in 29 BCE, so two years after the Battle of Actium, he used the captured warships from Antony's fleet to supply his new monuments with a variety of naval spoils. The first monument was a type of naval museum, which was built across the Straits of Cape Actium near the Temple of Apollo Actios. It housed a squadron of 10 warships from Anthony's fleet, ranging in classification from a 1 to a 10. Uh, this section of the monument was supposedly burned down by the time of the ride of Strabo, who wrote his account sometime during the 1st century CE. Now, the most interesting monument is the second monument. It was considerably larger and more elaborate than the first. The second monument was erected where Octavian held his command post and tent before the battle on the hilltop overlooking Cape Actium. So on the lower terrace of this monument, attached to the length of the retaining wall, was a continuous line of ramps, which generally increased in size from right to left. Based on the design of the monument, inferred from archaeological remains, the estimated number of ramps displayed ranged from 33 to 35, with enough space available to possibly fit 40 ramps. These ramps would have come from uh, Cleopatra's and Anthony's polyrene warships, ranging classification from a 5 to a 10. And based on estimations, the largest ram, would be on a 10, the large ram would be would almost weigh two tons, which is a massive ram. Although none of these rams have survived, uh, their existence is evidenced by the rock cuttings or sockets that once attached them to the retaining wall of the monument. So why do I bring up this monument? This monument indicates the final use of large warships, right? This is what this is the culmination of the big ship phenomenon. This is what ends it. Octavian successfully defeats um, Anthony and Cleopatra, and he takes all of their ships and their rams and he puts them on display not only to show the end of Anthony and Cleopatra's reign, but basically to show his Greek counterparts that you know their reign of naval dominance has come to an end and that these massive warships really have no use, right? So Anthony probably intended to use these massive warships to attack the ports and harbors of Rome, of uh, the Roman mainland, but he was stopped short by Octavian in Greece. 
You know, and the Romans never felt the need to maintain a large navy with a collection of big ships designed primarily for attacking coastal cities, since you know they were able to transport troops over land and be an effective land force. They didn't need to besiege coastal cities. Therefore, once Rome conquered all the Hellenistic king, the use of massive polyremes and major navies did fall out of use. You know, of course, the Romans still maintained some smaller navies in the Mediterranean, right? Imperial navies, eventually, and they did have some riverine forces. Um, like those up in Germany and Danube, but nothing to the size and grandeur of the previous centuries. So you're correct that once the Romans do become the major superior naval power in the Mediterranean, there really is no military purpose or political purpose, therefore, for the use of these massive, massive Hellenistic warships. It really is a unique um, aspect of naval history in the Mediterranean, where you have these massive ships built by the successors of Alexander the Great to combat one another, based both on, you know, maybe their masculinity, maybe, you know, their political and military purposes, but, you know, it is a naval arms race, and it's an amazing part of history, which I love to study, and it's sad that it ended, but, you know, it's it's a, uh, it's something that everyone should take a look into. <laughs> on that point, I think this is a good place to halt our discussion, and I'd like to say again, I sincerely appreciate you for joining me on the show to talk about your work. Is there anything you would wish to plug in case listeners want to find out more about your work or any upcoming projects? Awesome. So first off, again, thanks for having me on the podcast. You know, it was really fun. And I hope that all your avid listeners enjoy this episode. I know that I enjoy previous episodes. And when this comes out, hopefully I'll like to hear my own voice. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but if anyone wants to follow my work, the easiest way to follow me is on Twitter. So at SDeCession, that's S-D-E-C-A-S-I-E-N. Or you can also follow my blog, Handling the Humanities, which myself and fellow colleagues talk about graduate school and general humanities questions. Also, please check out RPM Nautical Foundation and the Institute of Nautical Archaeology. Check out both their websites for updates on new and exciting underwater finds. They're constantly doing work in the Mediterranean, basically both of them all over the world, and they are some of the best um, nautical foundations in the world. And again, thanks for having me on, and I look forward to listening to more episodes as they come out. Fantastic. And I will include all of these links in the show notes on my website at www.hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com and the podcast description if any listener wants to learn more. So, until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast.